This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Shannon Clark and Anand Gupta of Palantir Technologies. Shannon Clark is a senior vice president at Palantir, where she leads innovation, strategy, and growth with their defense clients. Anand Gupta oversees building Palantir's most frontier products, including those at the intersection of space and artificial intelligence. Roger, Shannon, and Anand talked about Palantir and the role that software plays in protecting our national security. Shannon Clark, Anand Gupta, welcome to the show. Thank there we go. Yes. Yeah, see, I didn't know which one I was going to call on first. I was testing whether you listened to my direction. Well, we're, we're really happy to have you both here uh, on, on Reaganism. Uh, of course, each of you are uh, Palantirians. Uh, that means you work at the company called Palantir. Shannon, you as Senior Vice President of Palantir, where you lead on innovation strategy and growth in the, uh, the defense space. And Anand, you oversee, oversee building Palantir's frontier products, including those at the intersection of space and AI. Shannon, because I'm a Washington person, I intuitively understand what you do. Anand, because I'm not a technical person, Frontier product sounds amazing, but I don't understand what that means. So Shannon, first, let's start with you. Tell us how you arrived at Palantir and do you like being called a Palantirian? Well, actually, we we don't call ourselves Palantirians most of the time, Roger. We call ourselves hobbits. So uh, just to make sure that you're up to date with, with the latest lingo that we refer to. So Anand and I are fellow hobbits at Palantir. Um, I arrived here for, you know, I think seeing my background, you can guess that, you know, having spent the early 2000s in counterterrorism world, that was an extremely important uh, time in my life, uh, just being an intelligence analyst first and then moving to counterterrorism policy. The last job that I had at the in the government was on the National Security Council um, as a director there in the counterterrorism directorate, working when when John Brennan was uh, working for President Obama. And I think it was the most exciting time I could ever pick to be at the White House because the end of my tour was during the um, the bin Laden raid. And to see the culmination of the last decade of my life, kind of, uh, you know, and be able to have that moment and see, you know, kind of how that unfolded and the policy implications and the aftermath with everything there. I mean, there wasn't, a, like I said, a more perfect time in my life, you know, to be at the White House and be part of that. But when I left, I, I went to grad school and I, I call it my sabbatical because I don't think I had taken vacation in, in several years. And, um, I was really looking for something that would give me that same feeling of I'm going to get up today and make a difference in the world and I'm going to do something that's going to make our country safer. And there were a lot of opportunities out there, but the Palantir one was so appealing to me because here were a bunch of guys in Silicon Valley, guys and girls and engineers building software that was getting at exactly what I had wanted to do better when I was an analyst, which was comb through all of this data to figure out where did we need to, uh, you know, put our forces, where did we need to uh, look at the threats and how did we investigate those and how could we do it better? So 
um, I joined Volunteer for that very mission to work on something to bring technology to the government that would enhance and improve our national security with really smart people uh, who were bringing stuff to the to the frontier, which Anand will tell you about exactly what he means by that. That, that's a great uh, story there. And, and wow, I mean, that's like a, a decade plus later from your time in in government working counterterrorism uh, at the time, you know, Palantir was known, but not as widely known as, as it is today. Uh, brief story on, on my side before we go down on it's I was a Hill staffer on the Armed Services Committee and couple folks from Palantir came in. It was my first exposure of kind of a Silicon Valley based company hitting the armed service committee. We weren't used to seeing a company like that. And it was all about mapping terrorist networks, which is Shan, I know what you were, you were referencing and, and how uh, they view that they could do that in a really uh, effective way that would be, you know, on the ground uh, useful for the warfighter um, with technology that they, they weren't able to, to leverage. And, Boy, did it make an impact. That and a lawsuit later really uh, uh, cha cha changed things in, in Washington. So, you know, Anand, let, let, let's talk about you. For... Bring that up. <laughs> hey, you know, you, you, you got to fight. That's that's part of what happens in this town. Um, Anand, you know, so, so Shannon's out there. She's at the heart of, uh, of counterterrorism fights, which, of course, defined the last decade and, and really, uh, I mean, just consequential stuff. For example, the no, no better example than the Bin Laden raid. And, and what are you doing at that time? Uh, were you dreaming of uh, how we go ahead and secure our national security assets in space? So here, here's the funniest thing. My story for coming to Palantir and even into the space and national security is almost the mirror opposite. But with this one intersection right before Palantir, um, which we're both, I think, very excited about. Um, it's, it's funny. I'd grown up in Silicon Valley. Like Palo Alto is my hometown. My parents worked in the software industry. You know, my mother was an AI startup in the '80s, um, and so that was always like my little world. And so I, you know, I I came from doing all kinds of sort of crazy things in startups, from you know DNA sequencing to you know medical imaging, and I bounced around that world for for quite some time. And I, you know, I I really enjoyed that. I loved that. Um, you, you you think you can do so much with technology to help people. Um, but there was a really interesting moment after I bounced around and started for a while. I found myself at Harvard um, as a student, an undergraduate, running around again, thinking I was going to do you know whatever technical things. And um, uh, around 2014, around the rise of ISIS, sort of here you keep hearing about ISIS in the news, and went from like, well, this is the JV team to hey, this is actually like a really big deal in Mosul and you know in, in Iraq and Syria. And I found myself down at the Harvard Kennedy School, somewhere where Shannon actually spent a lot of time. And and I was on the other other side of the the, the people who were missing did, there. Where did you get yeah. lost on campus? Is that how you landed at the uh, Harvard University School of Government? Like what went what went wrong? Uh, well, actually, uh, you can blame Graham Allison and his uh, free lunches for students in the libraries. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if we get nothing out of this podcast today to get great technical talent to enter the national security community, give really good free lunches. Is that is that the right takeaway? Yeah. A hundred percent, just right by the river. That was fantastic. Um, but it was it was crazy because I would I was like a, a you know maybe one of the few software people in the room, but I was surrounded by people like Shannon who had come from the NSC or people from the SEAL teams or from the CIA, which were just like three letter names for me on TV, and they and they sort of started telling me 
the stories and the challenges of, of the things they'd seen from working with working against Al Qaeda, solving problems against ISIS. And and the more I realized it, the more I sort of said, wait a second, like of all the impactful problems I could be working on, you know, I think there's some fantastic ones, but man, there's so much that could just help an individual soldier, or sailor, marine in the field. Um, and 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 it was funny because I had been thinking about stewing on it, and then I had met someone from Palantir from one of the other teams, and I said, well, you know, I understand kind of sort of what you do, but I don't really understand. And they said, well, how would you like to put Palantir on an aircraft carrier this summer? And and, and I think that was like made it all come full circle. Um, which and I was like, wait a second, we could actually do something, you know, really impactful, uh, you know, around that. And um, I put Palantir on an aircraft carrier that summer. Wow. But now, now, of course, that's how. Go ahead, Shannon. If we could have, if I could bottle up the energy that Anand had when we stuck him on this mew and like just the excitement that he had and like just give that even a small dose of it to everyone I know, it would be one of the most incredible things. I mean, everyone in this world would be happy, would be excited because he was just here he was. Like I said, he, he said, just came out of Cambridge, had never been in this world, but kind of he was just so smart and picked it up. And now when you hear Anand talk about anything, whether it's space or whatever, the, the level of knowledge he has, you you think that he had actually was like in the Marines or, you know, in any of these services, you can name any one of them because he's learned so much and his mind and his engineering mind and his analytic mind are so perfect for this that I don't think he, like he said, he never would have thought of that before, but he's just, he's always been so excited about it. And seven years has gone by. I remember when Anand first started um, and it's like, it's still, he still has this excitement to the day, but it's like, it's it's something unexpected, like you said. Like no one would think Anand's background would necessarily be suited to this, but now you realize it. And it's so perfect for everything well, that that he does at Palantir. It's a, it's a great story and and a great link between Shannon, you and your your policy and uh, kind of analyst uh, uh, background and 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 then your your technical background. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit when we talk about the National Security Innovation Base later on. But I, I guess I'm supposed to assume here, Anand, that. Uh, you conquered all things terrestrial, and now they've Palantir's just kind of sent you to space, and that and that's kind of how you landed your portfolio. You don't have to respond to that. We're going to get to the space part, but but before we go there, um, I really do want to talk a little bit about kind of the the merger of on in your world and Shannon your world, which came about because of you wanted that is a company wanted to deliver best in kind software uh, to use the language of every technical person who talks about. Uh, that what they do to solve problems, right, in the national security community. And I'm going to read you a quote from your CEO and founder, Dr. Alex Karp. He participated in the Reagan National Defense Forum uh, this past December. And he was talking about software, and he says, the core differentiator in technology now, this is Alex Karp for America, he says is software. And he says, we are delivering the thing that we are the best at in the world, and the difference is not linear. So it's not like we have a slightly better can opener than other countries. No, we have the can opener. Shannon, you've been there the longest, so I'm going with you first. Explain what CARP means by the United States having the can opener. Yeah, I know. Sometimes... Um Maybe I would pick a different word, but I, I do appreciate that he makes you think sometimes of like, okay, a can opener. Okay, when did I last use a can opener? Um, I, I think really what he's trying to say is just that 
you know, when he founded the company, when when the his co-founders founded the company, they wanted to build something that was 10x better than what was available uh, at the time. And that's how we think about software at Palantir every day. When we're building something new, as Anand and I will talk about what we're doing in space, it's always what is going to be 10x better. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think Dr. Karp would tell you, like, yes, he believes what America is building is 10x better than than any of our adversaries, That and that software is the most important thing. Because, you know, all of these, everything that's part of the national security and the defense industrial base, you know, everything that's being built, planes, missiles, UASs, ships, they're so important, but they are nothing without software to drive them and software to power them. And he believes at Palantir that our duty to make all of these platforms better, to build software that makes them more AI enabled, that makes them smarter, faster, and without the best software in the world, that these things are really, you know, they're, they're I don't want to say nothing, but they that's what they need. Um, Anand probably has like a more cheekish answer for, for the can opener, and his humor is a little bit better than mine, so I, I'm curious what he thinks. All right, Anand, let's go to you. Go Demystify the can opener. Yeah, yeah the can opener is a, a little bit dull uh, compared to a satellite or a, or a missile, but I, I mean, look, like, this is the other thing I think about, to Shannon's point, about 10 times better. You know, I think in 1970 or 1980, uh, the satellites, this, this, the reconnaissance satellites, for example, that the government put up were 10 or 100 times better than their peers, right? U.S. reconnaissance satellites were absolutely 100 times better than they what the Soviet Union was putting up. What's crazy today, just to make that concrete, right? Look, like the can opener today is not the satellite because for a million dollars, a commercial company in Argentina can put up a satellite in orbit that has the same quality as what a national agency used to put up. And so now what's the difference between those satellites? It, it's, it's actually nothing. The Chinese launch hundreds of Earth observation satellites every year. And so the difference is actually, well, what software are you using to take advantage of those satellites? But everything else has become, frankly, more and more even. And software is the only way to be 10 times better uh, technically than than our adversaries. Great. Uh, so got it. And and the United States, it's nice to hear you know, Alex Karp say that the United States is the best at this. Uh, there's certainly uh, others competing. You know, you think of China first. They have a lot of people, full stop there, but also working on software. So that's that's got to be an advantage. Uh, artificial intelligence. Give us the, I'm going to start with you, how that plays into software, software design, because that's usually the next word you hear about why software matters so much, because that's the place where you're going to see the AI enter and impact. Yeah, uh, the kind of the magic of artificial intelligence is really some of this technology is like as near to magic as you can imagine. Um, the magic of it is taking some of the problems that up to today would have taken so much manpower to solve, so many people, literally thousands of people, and saying, actually, a machine can now participate in this. And that that transformation means that you can work uh, you can work so much faster than you ever would be able to do before. And so that's very abstract, but like very concretely, you know, I think of the again, you go back and you say, well, when we started doing U two flights, right? So these spy planes were flying over and observing every single you know, Russian military installation. 
okay, well, it took an army of humans, analysts, to count every single ballistic missile that the Russians were building. Today, right, that's a very, very difficult task. People had to do a lot of work to do that. Today, an artificial intelligence algorithm can chew through every one of those images in a handful of minutes and count every single ballistic missile. And so what, like, the transformation of, of what that technology means is it says, wait a second, the data that you get back, the imagery you get back, the audio you get back is no longer the bottleneck for your decision-making process. Now something else it is. Um, and it, and that, that like changes how you, uh, like how you plan everything, how you make decisions in the field. So l- let me go to you, Shannon. And, and I want to come back to that a little bit and uh, because I want to hear how Palantir plays in this space and differentiates itself so we can kind of get an understanding of, of the entry point. But you oh, talk about AI software um, and how it's made the kind of the hardware, you know, almost less significant because the hardware pieces, you know, anybody could put up the satellite for a million bucks. As you said on, let's look at Russia, Ukraine right now um, as an example. And of course, uh, Alex Karp was, I think the first US CEO uh, to, to go into Ukraine and meet with President Zelensky. But l- let's start the conversation around Ukraine because we're testing almost this proposition, Shannon. Can the great power that is Russia, the legacy of being the, the Soviet empire with all its conventional strength, all that metal, and they're going up against a Ukraine that can't compete with all that metal, but they seem to be able to compete with the software. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal, and I'll, I'll elaborate the point and then have your reaction, Shannon, about how Iran is sending drones to armed drones to, to Russia to help in their campaign. And it's shocking to me that you have the, the bear of Russia relying on Iranian, essentially software and uh, technology, and is actually not having the same effect. Uh, certainly not, not as good as whatever the Ukrainians have, which of course is coming from the United States, probably their own uh, indigenous uh, 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 you know, technologists and from, from the West. So it's like, oh my gosh, this playing field is, is playing out almost it's, it's leveled the playing field dramatically in terms of how we think about armed conflict. Shannon, give me your reaction to that. And then I'm going to read you a quote from Alex Karp and have you be the uh, translator once again. Translator. Okay. Uh, I'm hoping that when he listens to this later, he thinks that I have done a good job over the last decade of listening to him and understanding him. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> or he says, you don't understand me at all. We need, <laughs> clearly need to spend more time together. Um, <laughs> You know, I, Dr. Karp did make a visit there, and I believe it, it was June or May. The months seem to uh, to combine at this point. But, and I think what he did was pledge, you know, Palantir's support to helping to helping the Ukraine, as have you know other companies followed suit and and done the same thing. And I I think his trip is a testament to the fact that Palantir always strives uh, best when there's when there's chaos, when there's an exigent need in the world, and um, whether it be a corporation or a company or allies that need our help. And I think him going there is really just a testament to Palantir at its core of what we want to do, which is help where we believe that uh, a country or a corporation needs it. And we, we certainly believe in in supporting the Ukraine. Um, I, or I, I believe that you saw that from him at least. Um, 
I I think that for Anand and I, this maybe like isn't a shock as you would, and and he's really. I'm sure he's kind of chomping at the bit here to comment on the on this because he's been peeking out a lot over the, exactly what they're doing. But I think that it's not necessarily a shock to us because we like we kind of believe in that like it doesn't have to be that like the great conflict or the great power as you have said about Russia is necessarily the one that's going to win because we believe the person that has the better technology will. And I think with all these companies that are supporting the Ukraine, they've got some amazing technology at their fingertips right now and they are hungry and eager to use it. And they're also just willing to say, show us and tell us how to use it and we will. And those to us are like the best users to work with because they're the ones that want to say, hey, you know, maybe what we use in the past isn't going to work. We're willing to throw that out the window. And just the mindset of the Ukrainians from everything we've experienced over the last few months, it's kind of just eager, like I said, hungry and willing to say, if you show us some new technology that you think will work, we'll use it. Um, you know, there's obviously several drone companies that have been um donating you know some of their technology and so to see what they've been putting up has been quite incredible as well i, I think I'll, I'll let anand comment on that but i actually don't think it's as big a surprise to us knowing now what we have seen with the people on the ground and their willingness to kind of adapt to the technology and i think that different mindset over russia is ultimately why you're seeing such uh such an I don't want to say exciting, but such a, an incredible fight by the Ukrainians just because of their willingness to learn. Anand, I don't know if you want to comment. Yeah, let me, let me, let me set you up on it real quick here, but let, let, let me set you up here quick on it. But you, 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 you're right, Shannon. I mean, it's, I think the public perception of this was David versus Goliath, right? And what we're seeing is the power of the slingshot, that that slingshot actually has effects and ability to take out uh, Goliath, that maybe the folks at Palantir, Shannon, you, you've been there, you know, for over a decade on, you know, you've been there quite some time. You knew this was the theory of the case, but you're actually seeing it play out in real. So here's the quote from Alex Karp. And then on, and I'm going to, I'm going to set you up here because it, it follows up. This was uh, an interview with, uh, uh, CNBC and, um, Andrew Ross Sorkin point was is that the war between Russia and Ukraine is making big countries reconsider their military strategies. And then uh, Dr. Karp's quote says, quote, the lesson for every big country is holy. And then it S and it doesn't, and my written thing doesn't, but that, that's what they have there. We've been bullying, we've been buying all this heavy stuff. And if people are willing to fight as heroes, fight to the last person, Shannon, you were just hitting on this they might actually be able to beat us. Him, this is Dr. Cobb channeling a, a great power. Anand, what are we learning about warfare? What are we seeing in Russia, Ukraine that's perhaps delivering this, this lesson that uh, Dr. Karp, you know, is kind of sharing this conclusion uh, with the world? Yeah, Shannon said something that I think we feel really deeply as we watch the Ukrainians and their partners and allies fight, which is the thing that is allowing them to win is being as dynamic as possible. The Russians, as you know, ever the world has seen, came in and they brought their old technology, their old doctrine, their old tactics, and then they showed up and, and when things happened to them, they couldn't gather information together, they couldn't change their behavior quickly enough compared to the Ukrainians 
who didn't show up with their legacy hardware. They didn't show up with their legacy behavior. They said, we want to start from scratch. We want to move very quickly and do everything digitally on day one. And whenever we learn something, we want to share that information with everyone in our force. And so whenever the Russians would do something, the Ukrainians would pass that information around. It was not like people, you know, selling, sending telegrams or using legacy walkie talkies. They had digital encrypted communications on day one that worked. The Russian encrypted radios were from 10 or 15 years ago and largely failed. Well, the, the reports are they didn't use them. They were using iPhones and shared with the world. You know, we, we, we got to see what they were saying. But this is the comical thing. It was not simply that they were, they, they didn't, that the encrypted radios didn't work. They fell back, not to the encrypted things like signal that we're used to that are, you know, the types of encrypted technology the Ukrainians were using. They said, well, our flip phones work, so we'll still make unencrypted calls. You're not hearing transcripts of Ukrainian phone calls because they said, no, 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 we're going to use the right digital infrastructure on day one. And then when we learn, when, as Shannon mentioned, as they fielded new drones and there were jammers, they said, okay, this is how we can work around jammers. As they started to use satellites, and you know, I think they've got pretty incredible access to some space technology, working with several other companies. They didn't just say, we'll just take photos and then look at them. They said, what, is the, what are the algorithms we need so that we can use these photos, right? When they started fielding Every new piece of equipment has actually folded into this bigger picture. And the Ukrainians, I think, genuinely are one of the, the few fighting forces that can say, yeah, we have a full picture of what our battle space looks like. And I think that that is dynamic. That's not a thing that, uh, you know, if a big power shows up and says, well, we had this thing that was working 20 years ago and it's fine, it, it, it doesn't work. You, you just can't adapt quickly enough when, when you have all the right technology and you have all the people who, who are motivated to fight for their lives, but also to change things that aren't working. Um, and so that's like very, very special. Uh, that's super helpful. I think we're going to migrate here from Russia, Ukraine to the, the space portfolio, but here's the way I want to do it. It's February, 2022. And the world gets to see this huge Russian buildup on the Russian Ukraine border. And then they go in on February 23rd, 2022. And you have the buildup of this column. And the whole world gets to see it because space and commercial space has exploded. And it's this trillion dollar sector where we get to see what's going on real time on the ground in a place where I'm pretty confident Vladimir Putin didn't want the world to be looking. And the Biden administration, perhaps too late, but was able to actually disclose a lot of this stuff with their capabilities early on to try to do something that had a mixed result of deterrence by disclosure. But all this kind of led in high relief for the average American that space really matters and it's different. Anand, tell us about why you, somebody who is a software technologist, is in the space field now. And you're, you're, my sense is it's a big part of what you're doing at Palantir, AI in space and kind of Build it out from the picture I sent from February 2022. Yeah, it's it's crazy because February 2022, in some ways, was the culmination of so much investment and excitement and technological work in space, and we got to see it actually manifest all at once. Um, but the interesting thing, and, and really the thing that pulled me into space, and then what has really driven a lot of the work from our frontier teams, um, was actually the users we're used to sitting with, the mission planners and intelligence analysts we'd spent time with 
over the last decade. And I was spending time with them even uh, last year. And they said something very interesting. They, they keep saying, hey, we're having a hard time monitoring all of these Russian positions in all these places. Right. That's the like, that's the many decades. These are the, when you talk about, you know, people in government who you're supporting, right, across what's called the Space Force or other national agencies, right? This is what you're, you people you're talking to. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. It's the national agency. So an intelligence analyst at a three-letter agency, you can imagine, but also a special operator somewhere, right? So somebody at the forward edge of the battlefield, somebody at the 82nd Airborne Division, right, who's on the on the crisis watch, ready to deploy anywhere on the planet. They have to be ready to go. And they were saying, we need to have as much understanding of where the Russians are before we go anywhere, right? So this is months before. And and we started to look, and as we looked at the space, we looked at all these, these fantastic satellite companies, we looked at all the satellites that were being launched, we looked at the great technology coming from SpaceX that was putting these up every single week, um, and we said, wait a second, the problem isn't the satellites. There actually, there's so many satellites now. The thing that pulled us into space as an industry was there was way more imagery and way more capacity to image the planet than anyone knew what to do it. And I sort of sat here and I said, wait a second, I have a human, I have, I have an analyst I'm sitting next to who wants more insight about Russian forces. And I have way too many satellites generating way too many images. And there's just like a, sort of a question mark in between the photos and that analyst. And that's where we always would plug in. I, I mean, clar clarify this for me. And then uh, Shannon, I want you to kind of give the perspective in terms of the cultural change in terms of the, the government agencies and willingness to talk to someone like on and have them solve problems for him. Cause I, I don't take that for granted for a second, but, but is, was the problem was that you had too many satellites that didn't know how to kind of coordinate and work together, or they were all sending their data down and that, that human was unable to figure out how to manipulate the data to get the information they want or both. Turns out there are three problems. All right. Take problem me through the three. Yeah. So the problem number one is, you need to put the right satellites to look at the right target at the right time. Otherwise, you can have all the same satellites image that target once, and then you end up a blind spot. Oh, we didn't see it for six hours. So how do you get continuous monitoring so you know the moment a Russian tank leaves its base or a bomber leaves its base, right? So that's problem number one. How do you schedule the right satellites across hundreds of satellites now? It's no longer one or two spy satellites. It's you know 10 different companies with different capabilities. So that's problem one. Problem two is, okay, and now I gave you 100 satellites worth of photos, which like on a two-week time span, I could give you 2,000 photos. And now you have that second problem. How do you have an analyst not look through 2,000 photos, which will take forever, but instead say, okay, well, here's an algorithm that will find them the right thing so they can see what's going on. There's a third problem, though, that we didn't touch, which is that only counts if you can do it really fast. Right. I take a photo, and it arrives at a user's desk three days later, doesn't count. Doesn't matter how many cool algorithms I apply to it, doesn't count. We need to be able to do that in an actual decision time frame. Think under six hours, right? Take a photo, get an answer six hours later. So let me guess, the answer to those three hard problems is really good software. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just about to say, Anand, you really, you really set me up for the answer. But Roger, to your point, you can understand now why space is a Palantir problem and why Palantir feels passionate about being able to work on this problem set. Because for us, we look at it just the same way that we looked at counterterrorism in their early and mid 2000s, which was here you have a ton of, of drone 
footage. Here you have a ton of intelligence reporting. All of this data is landing on the analyst desk. The analyst is saying, holy crap, I don't know how to parse through all of this. The amount of data you're collecting you know, as a, as a national agency is increasing exponentially. The amount of analysts that are coming on board to analyze the data is a linear problem set. There's no way to sit there and, you know, as Anand described before, watch all of this drone footage. But you know, for instance, that it's there. So in the in 2009, when I was sitting in Afghanistan as an analyst, and I was trying to comb through all of this data or trying to see all this footage, I always knew what Anand said, which was like, I kind of always had some sort of idea of what was going on, a pattern of life, if you will, of the things that interested me. In space, as Arnon said, there's just like a proliferation of, you know, all of these satellites right now. And they're incredible. I mean, like, and and you see a lot of them every day, those images, whether they're in the journal or in, in the Times, because, you know, those commercial companies share that information, you know, via news outlets, et cetera. But to Anand's point, it doesn't matter if there's too much data and the analysts can't go through it. And it doesn't matter if that, da if that data isn't given to them in a timely manner. Because then, you know, okay, great, you see one day, you know, where the Russian troop buildup is. But if you don't see that until three days later, it's like, how are you possibly going to react to that? Yeah, it's stale. It's old news. Right, right. And that's why we feel passionate about inserting ourselves here and going after this problem because we do think that the technology we have can can make a difference. And I think that this is really, you know, we always talked about this that someday this would happen and we would and everyone had to plan for this. But really, I don't think we probably as a as a country planned well enough for this moment. So we are in a little bit of I think reaction mode for like how to deal with this. But I think there are lessons to be learned from the counterterrorism problem set now to, you know, near peer of like, just on the data front, like, how do you apply the lessons learned there, the integrating, using, you know, machine learning, using AI to, to set up alerts to, to this new problem set. And quite frankly, it's, it's really exciting for us to, to be a part of that, to watch that unfold, and also to apply those lessons learned to this new problem set. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that there's so many important consequential elements to Russia's war in Ukraine. But what it's teaching us about the future of warfare and how to do it and testing it is, is is one of the top ones, certainly for military planners and strategists. Jen, I want to come back to you in a moment to talk about the mindset of policymakers and buyers in the in the world of, of government to see how much they're adjusting and embracing or maybe just understanding this. But before we do that, you know, I want to go to you, Anand, because Shannon was talking about as a consumer you know, in her prior role as an analyst, it's key to get the information, good information, but in a timely fashion. Explain to everybody, I think this is one of the coolest parts of what we hear about is happening, and that is kind of space AI and, and kind of the edge in space and, and, and how that connects to this idea of getting timely information where you were referencing before, it can't be three days, it needs to be within six hours. What does it mean, kind of, what's the edge in space? Yeah, so uh, there's something really interesting that goes on to get you that photo that you see in the journal on, on the Times, uh, you know, of that convoy. And it's actually this kind of complicated process. You know, I guess it, it seems natural now, um, and even compared to, you know, 50 years ago. 50 years ago, you know, the government was 
dropping film canisters from space and retrieving them uh, you know, in midair to, to get it data down from the ground. We don't do that today. Turns out that was really, really difficult. But today, to get data down from space, if you have a beautiful telescope in space and it takes an image of the ground of convoy, that, that satellite then has to fly around the world and then take gigabytes of imagery or even videos in certain cases and download them to a ground station. Now, the satellite is only over the top of that ground station for about 90 seconds. So it has to beam down that data really fast, right? And then you have this gigabytes of data. And this data is like not really fit for humans, especially if it comes from a radar. Like you can't just like look at this stuff. You have to, well, at least digitally develop it. It's sort of a little different from film. But um, then there can be hours of processing and transferring and copying from a ground station at the North Pole to a data center in Virginia. Mercy, this is very complicated. You've convinced me. How do we solve it? Well, here's the funny thing. If you're looking at you know, open fields and you're looking for tanks or you're looking at a port, all you care about is the ships in that image. You don't care about the open ocean. And frankly, like half the satellite photo is filled with open ocean. Mm. So our whole thought was, wait a second, take all of those algorithms that we run in the data centers on the ground, the de detecting of ships, the processing of the image, the figuring out where the image is in the world. And just what if we take that, squeeze it way down, and we can actually deploy that software on board a satellite. And so the satellite is not sending down big photos, which take forever to get down. It's sending tiny little packets saying, yep, this is the position of a ship at these two coordinates. That's it. And a little bit of context maybe to give help someone along. And if you reduce the amount of data that you need to send down, then, well, then it's much easier to transmit it. It's much easier. The software to sift through the data on the satellite. Last technical question, then I want to get yeah. some policy with Shannon here. Um, all these satellites, oh, many, I mean, they're up in space already, right? They're there. So are you talking about something that will happen in the future, or is there a way right now to work on satellites remotely? I mean, how, how are you delivering this edge technology? So this is, this is like the thing that we've actually done that's revolutionary. Um, we put software on board these satellites in a way that we can update it from the ground anytime. We can push a new algorithm on the next ground station pass. And we've done this. We've actually... I mean, like, so my phone gets an update. You can do that for the satellite. I do that for the satellite. And it's just as easy as hitting the update button in your phone. That's very cool. And, 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 and give me, like, raw percentage here. Of the satellites that we need to do this work, how many of them actually have the ability to be updated like that? Or do you need to go send you satellites up there? Or, or it's only for satellites that have been going up for the past, I don't know how long. Here's the good news. SpaceX is on course to launch uh, more than once every week this year. And each time they launch, they put up tens of new satellites. So in addition to the satellites that are already up there, which we know many actually have the capability to what we're doing, um, these things are getting replaced constantly. The, the constellation of Earth observation satellites will go from where it was a couple of years ago at less than 100 to well over 2,000 of them in less than a year and a half. And each company that wants to put these things up is going to go to 300 or 400 of their observation satellites by, by 2024. Sounds pretty congested, but space is pretty uh, big space, I guess. Shannon, um, I'm pulling at this from not, you know, you've been at the at, at penalty for a while and before, of course, in the National Security Council and been in, in, in kind of the bureaucracy. You have operators, you have consumers, they always want the best in class. They're going to want this. But then you have kind of the policymakers and the buyers that perhaps are not as attuned to what technology they need, and then but they tend to control the budgets and the decisions. 
are people getting this? Those with the authority to make those decisions about acquisition and and creating space here, at low, you know, not the space that Anna's talking about, but like you know, the ability within uh, the decision making apparatus of government to leverage these technologies. Well, what's the receptivity to all this? Yeah, I think. You know, last week we were over, um, you know, talking to a bunch of geointers, if you will, people that are, are focused on space, and we were talking just about this. Like, and I think all of us would say, of course, we want the government and policymakers to move faster. I don't think you would ever find anyone in the commercial space that would say the government is moving quickly enough. Anand and I spend about 50% of our time now actually working with private to private partnerships, working with companies to kind of show how both of our technologies can actually amplify a, a given problem set um, and then kind of bring that back to the government. Because what I think is happening is there's so much new technology out there that the government can't really understand sometimes how it all works together. You know, they'll they'll put out this giant proposal that says, hey, we're trying to solve this problem. These are all the specific things we need. And, you know, these teams form and they try to kind of jam all their pieces together to say that they fit this requirement. But it's like it's kind of backwards in my mind. It's like what I think we need to be doing is showing more private to private how we can solve these problems and like bringing the creativity to the government, to the policymakers well before they kind of understand even the need, if you will. So the example I had is, Anand just talked to you about the satellites going in space. You know, in um, in April, that's what we did. We put Palantir software on a Satellogic NewSat satellite for the very first time. It launched on a Falcon 9 rocket. Uh, it, you know, it got into low Earth orbit. It did exactly what Anand talked to you about there, which was delivered these chips down, giving you AI insights at a much faster pace. And I think that like we are now showing the government like what's in the realm of possible so that policymakers can be more informed and can make decisions without making an investment necessarily like prior to that. Like they are relying on our IRAD to kind of give them the next wave of like what do they need to do. And I think as a private, you know, company, as a commercial company, that we need to do this more. Or that we need to be leaning into IRAD to showing the government what's in the realm of possible so that when they make these investments, they don't see uh, or they don't see them as a big risk because we've kind of already taken up our own IRAD to show them what's in the so realm. You've done your own research and development. It will help them adapt to new tech. Yeah, it was. A, yeah. So it, and I think that will help them adapt sooner. Yeah, uh, sorry, I, I, I was talking over you for a second, but it, you were just wanted to make sure the IRAD here is your own uh, research and development, and and that is allows you to yes. put forward to the government a a solution as opposed to having something under development, so you can actually you know touch it, feel it, experience it, as opposed to being promised yeah. that you will build something in the future. Uh, we only have a couple more minutes here. Really fascinating discussion, straddling from you know the raid on Osama bin Laden, uh, successful raid, and and through uh, Russia, Ukraine, and now we find ourselves in, in space. All pretty good, uh, interesting subjects in their own right, tied together by uh, the work you do, Shannon, and and on in at, at Palantir. I want to hit one more question on the National Innovation Base, and then we'll we'll go to our lightning round, and we'll, we'll go to you on and. 
You have a great story you share at the outset. You got lost in the Harvard campus or you're looking for a really good free lunch and that introduced you to the world of national security. Of course, that's not the authorized story. That's just my cheeky uh, summary. But to have this best in kind software and having this best in kind, you know, type of capability you can deliver, whether it's in space or other problems in the national security community, you need great people, really, really good people. On and in your experience, um, have Palantir specifically more broadly, this innovation base been successful since you've joined Palantir, since you've joined this community in recruiting others like you? Yeah. So this is one of the most, one of the most compelling things about being at Palantir. And, and I think it's true in other parts of the, the, this sort of national security innovation base. Um, and it's that Palantir brings together people from all kinds of experiences and backgrounds and skill sets. And make, and that actually generates the, like the excitement you're seeing you here is because we're all exciting each other. And I remember in my day one at Palantir, I sat across from somebody who was previously a CIA case officer next to a, a math major who had worked at Google, who was a fantastic engineer, and with a U.S. history major. And I, it was it was just this combination of really interesting people who could generally- well, Let's be honest here. Ideas. The U.S. history major definitely got lost that day. He, he or she ended up in the wrong room. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but the, but the best part was basically like the creativity that came from all those people together mm -hmm. from all these different sort of experiences and, and skill sets. It was that we actually generated better and better technical ideas. It wasn't simply that, you know, uh, it was like, we had one perspective, another perspective. It was that you could just bounce back and ideas back and forth and back and forth until, you know, you came up with something that you, you didn't even, you know, come out with it from the outset. And I think this is something that's uniquely American. It's like that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet in the way that it does exist here. And in the tech community particularly, it's the way that we come up with that 10x better technology, the better can opener. Last question for you, and then I want to go to Shannon real quick. So when you go back to uh, Palo Alto, your home, you shared at the beginning, and you tell them what you're doing. Uh, you tell them that you're a hobbit. Thanks for that correction. You tell them that you're solving national security problems. Are you embraced? Are you, people look at you quizzically? Are you frowned at? What's, what's the reaction you get? So look, like I know Silicon Valley has had a very mixed sort of story at the big, at the high level working with the government. But when you go a layer down and you talk engineer to engineer and you talk to an engineer that you're, you know, you work with at Amazon or Microsoft or whatever, and you say, you know, I got to work on software on a satellite or software on an aircraft carrier. They love that. That's the crazy part is they love the heart, like how difficult they understand how difficult it is when they're, when you're talking about, you know, these types of communications and these types of sensors that we work with. And so it's actually like massively exciting uh, to those people. Shanna, you go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say Dr. Carp always says he manages a colony of artists. That's his job as the CEO of Palantir. Um, I think he said it, one of the first times when we right when, before we went public and at the time we had 2500 people but it's very true because we hire people that are 
really strong at very specific things. We, you know, we don't hire generalists. And so we saw in Anand, for instance, you know, he was really sharp. He was really good at very specific things. And I think the the folks that he talked about sitting around the room during his, his days, they were all very good at, you know, you know, the specific things that they did. And now that's how we manage this group. So it's an extremely unique group of hobbits. I think sometimes people are just so overwhelmed with like all the little idiosyncrasies that we have of each other, but it enables us to work together and just really appreciate, you know, what each other's strengths are and, and bounce off of those. I've been working with Anand pretty much the entire time that he's been at Palantir. Um, and he and I, you know, have such different strengths, but we know each other so well now, and we know what each other's strengths are and what each other's weaknesses are too, too, sadly. Um, don't tell those on. And, uh, but I think it's very true, like the, the colony of artists reference, because you won't find someone at Palantir that's a generalist, that's good at 10 different things. You'll find people at Palantir that are good at one or two of those things. And they lean into those things and that's where they excel and they perform and they're quite frankly really high performers because of it because they have the space to do what they do really really well very cool i mean it's a really cool interesting way to think about human capital and and bringing people together to to solve these problems and uh leveraging the the commercial sector because this is a, a private sector company big commercial business in addition to the government business so that's the origin and obviously contributing to something that the the nation needs um, let's move to our lightning round. Uh, of course, this is where we ask our guests to share their favorite book about President Reagan, uh, their favorite speech by President Reagan, their favorite Reagan quote. Um, you know, Reagan was a huge advocate of the free market. Uh, the entrepreneurial spirit really uh, was something that animated his thinking and, and policies. You think about Strategic Defense Initiative, um, which uh, the so-called Star Wars program, which uh, folks thought that was something just for uh, – perhaps science fiction or or the movies. Of course, now uh, companies like you know, Palantir are making it reality. Let's start with you, Shannon. Which one of those do you want to take on for a lightning round? Yeah, you guys are going to laugh at my quote, but um, I picked this one, which is, you can tell a lot about a fellow's character by his way of eating jelly beans. And I just <laughs> thought, man, I would love to have had that conversation Conan is not surprised at this because he knows I'm a giant candy connoisseur and that I was, pro I'm probably thinking like, I wonder what he thinks about a man and eating jelly beans, like how he understands your character. Cause I would definitely judge someone if I saw them, you know, how they're eating their, their <laughs> jelly beans. So I was like, be wondering what, what he was like, how does he judge a man uh, by the way they eat their jelly beans? So um, that's, that is to me when well, I- Listen, we've done, we've done over a, awesome. no, north of 120 uh, episodes here and congratulations. You are the first to offer that quote in the lightning round, although I am giving it much more serious thought after sharing that. What else do you have, Shannon? Um, no, I mean, I think- I don't know that you can really top that, Roger. I mean, I I, I <laughs> for his. Anand, what do you got? Do you have a quote, a speech, or a book you want to share with us? You really, by the way, I should have gone to you first because there's no way you're topping Shannon. No, I, I couldn't possibly top that. Um, uh, look, like I, I've got a fun little national security one that that means something to me, um, and I think it sort of ties the whole thing. Um, it's from a speech in 83 that gave it um, in March um, on national security. And he says, I call upon the scientific community in our country, those who gave us the nuclear weapons, 
to turn their great talents now to the cause of mankind and world peace, to give us the means of rendering those nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. That was, I believe, the SDI speech. It was. Um, and and uh, great, you know, I, great example of where Reagan was looking to the uh, technologists and the entrepreneurs of his day to solve, as you would say, really, really big problems that uh, could change the world for the better and, of course, drive to, uh, to peace and prosperity, true peace and prosperity. Anand, Shannon, thank you so much for being on the show. This is a great conversation. Learned a lot. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. Thank you.